0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 17, entitled, The Development of Imperialism, Part 2, given in Dornach on February 21, 1920. I have been speaking to you about the historical origins of what we can nowadays call imperialism, and you will already have noted from what I said yesterday that these considerations of imperialism are dependent upon being able to recognize that phenomena of the present, which were at one time real elements of life, are in reality nothing more than vestiges of an older time. In that older time, these practices, rituals, and institutions all had their own genuine meaning. They were, by and large, realities. That reality was lost over time. They developed through a period of existence as symbols, and finally became nothing more than empty phrases. We are living now entirely in the age of the empty phrase. We need simply to come to see that the empty phrases of the present are necessarily rooted in a past out of which they have grown, and that, on the other hand, these empty phrases are a preparatory stage for what must enter now into human evolution. If reality had not transformed into phrases, meaning into something that is essentially an extant illusion, it would not be possible for something altogether new to come into being. New things could not come into the world if, for example, the visible, perceptible gods in human form still towered over the human race, as was the case during the Roman Empire, when the last descendants of these gods lived. For the Roman emperors were, even if it was not felt as fully as it had once been during more ancient times, they were, nonetheless, gods in their pretensions. Nero was a god in human form, at least if we follow the assumptions and hypotheses made about him. Over the course of time these things lost their true meaning. They traveled through the age of symbols and allegories, and then became nothing more than phrases. Now it is the case that the more completely these things transform into empty phrases, the more the ground is prepared for the entrance into a new reality, a spiritual life that is not taken out of the sensory world, but rather the supersensory world, a spiritual life that does not find godly spiritual beings in the forms of human beings. But rather finds true and genuine spiritual beings existing in and among the visible physical human beings on the earth. The empire of the empty phrase must exist first, and must then also be recognized for what it is. Then it will be possible for a new spiritual life to develop. If you want to understand the present based on such, shall we say, uncomfortable premises, then you must be able to gaze upon the birth of a new spiritual life occurring alongside the dissolution into illusion of everything that once had reality in human evolution. It is all too natural that we desire to cling to the old realities, even after they have become nothing more than empty phrases. For to see clearly that things have become these empty phrases, engenders an uncertainty, in our feeling core. When we are forced to admit that these old things have become mere phrases, we believe that we no longer have a secure floor beneath our feet. People love to delude themselves because they believe that in the moment they accept that the delusion is a delusion, they will suddenly drift up into the air. But you would no longer believe that you will drift off aimlessly like this if you were able to feel truly the solidity of the new spiritual life. We are living currently in an age in which we must be a participant both in the life of the dying phrase and in the burgeoning spiritual life. This will be made possible especially by the continuing emergence of the English-speaking peoples of the world and the things which they have traditionally maintained since an earlier time and about which they still speak the way in which those things have necessarily become empty phrases, and the way in which economic life continues to exist in a reality amidst those phrases, just as I described to you yesterday. Economic life is the only thing that can be truly real in a world of empty phrases. But a time will come, a moment of particular importance, in the moment when we feel that we are dealing only with that economic life, which in the third and fourth generation will of course become, in quotes, fair and square, as I described to you yesterday, and otherwise with nothing more than phrases, in this moment we will have a feeling of the nothingness of humankind, the base existence within a physical life that composes the whole of reality. This knowledge must be born in the peoples of the Western world especially. The moment must come in which this conviction takes hold in our souls, we can no longer grab hold of anything about which we speak. The only reality that surrounds us is the acquisition and preparation of things for our stomachs and digestion. As long as we do not see that the empty phrases in the world are phrases, As long as we do not know that economics is the only true reality in the world, we will not arrive at the necessary understanding. When we do arrive at the necessary understanding, however, then human nature can do nothing other than say to itself, in order to be a human being, we must bring a spiritual reality to this physical reality consisting solely of economic life. The dawning moment of this knowledge must come soon. Without it, human evolution can go no farther. For the same reason that we are moving in the direction of a new spiritual life, we must also immerse ourselves at present in the element of the empty phrase. Now, the strongest gift, the greatest talent for this knowledge, exists in the people of the West. In the West, the right preconditions exist for a dawning of this knowledge, whereas the rest of the peoples of Europe for example, are in less of a position to have such knowledge dawn for them with the necessary intensity. For in those regions other relationships dominate, which hinder the possibility of seeing through the illusions as fundamentally or radically as can occur in the West. You need only to turn your gaze again toward the historical relationships to understand this. Think for a moment about the fact that the various populations of German origin have been united since the time of the descendants of Charlemagne, since the Saxon and Staufen leaders of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, as I said yesterday. This Holy Roman Empire of the German nation was essentially an entire network of various symbols. Everything within it had the character of signs and symbols. In everything that you came across, it was necessary to trace back the signs and symbols until you found some form of reality. But this penetration of the signs and symbols did not lead to a fully spiritual reality. The church prevented this from occurring. By and large, you would arrive at some nebulous place, drifting about in a spiritual reality. Consequently, Everything that the Middle Ages and the descendants of the European church communities had to say about such a spiritual reality had the quality of something only half-grasped, something not completely understood. It had the quality of a light shining through the colored panes of glass in a medieval church. People shrank away from the spiritual world when they arrived at it through the symbols and signs of the Middle Ages. They shrank back from a clear, direct understanding. On the contrary, people preferred to describe the matter such that it continued to exist as something half unknown that could not be penetrated by knowledge. And the same was actually true in the case of outward social relationships. Anyone who studies with an inner sense the history of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation and the history of Switzerland is also inwardly connected with this history of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, you will see that one nonsensical thing was always built upon the last nonsensical thing from one age to the next. People tried to use these nonsensical things to take up the matter of societal organization, seeking to live within it and understand it on the basis of these things possessing no clarity. Until in 1806, people finally noticed, even the Habsburgs noticed it at the time, that the whole Holy Roman Empire, of the German nation, no longer made any sense. And the especially gifted, and by that I mean gifted in a negative sense, Emperor Franz I resigned the German imperial crown after completing a personal, or as they call it in this case, in-house switch, of the Austrian crown, not two years before. The whole thing lost any possibility of continuing to exist, because in the end people could no longer find any meaning behind these symbols. And for the people of Central Europe, nothing was left except for a sense of striving, a a desire that reached out toward all possible things, but contained within it little sense or meaning. This resulted in the founding of the empire in eighteen seventy seventy one, complete with its own inner contradiction. A German emperor was named, but the position did not result from any relationships that existed in reality. The title was simply invented. In France, if something similar had occurred, an emperor reinstated, then the people might perhaps have understood, at least partially, because they still had within them some actual substance for such a thing. But within the being of the German people there was just a name, which might have proven that they had some talent for creating names that had no meaning, that they had some talent for acting in service of the empty phrase, on the one hand, and of the neighboring reality of an economic life, that otherwise had nothing to do with phrases, on the other but there was no such talent in Central Europe. In order to understand what came about in Central Europe, we must be clear about the fact that history should not be studied through abstract concepts, but rather through realities. We can throw out a question and aim at reality. What is it, actually, that came into being in the German Empire between 1871 and 1914? Everything that existed there. Everything that people saw around them was only an illusion. What was the reality? Well, you see, when it comes to historical phenomena, it is the case that something occurs, but something altogether different is contained below the surface. When the first phenomena, the illusion, disappears, then the second will appear on its heels in reality. We should not try to analyze this but rather we must look to the reality, the concrete things. What developed in the German Empire between 1871 and 1914 does not manifest during this time period, for everything happening then was all illusion. The reality follows on its heels. The reality is everything that has occurred since November of 1918. This is what truly holds power at present. The archetypal character of the Wilhelmine period is Noska. The true nature of everything that has been developing for decades only emerged when the current individuals in power took their posts. The ex-emperor of the German Empire is defined by the so-called revolutionary figures in power at present. The conditions that lay beneath the surface decades ago during a time when people abandoned themselves to the illusions that existed those are the conditions that now exist in reality and in this way we can truly study history in so far as we seek the involution within the evolution in so far as we seek to discover what is developing beneath the surface what then is the true nature of 18th century tsarism the former russian tsarism when its Reality truly appears, now takes the form of Lenin and Trotsky, Bolshevism. This is the concrete reality of what was once mere illusion. Tsarism was simply the lie that swam over the surface. The truth of Tsarism appeared as soon as it had faded away. Lenin is nothing else if not a former Tsar. Once you strip away his surface layer, you are left only with his true reality." and in this case that reality is named Lenin or Trotsky. Or, continuing with this same idea, if you strip away the surface layer from people like Caprivi or Hohenlohe or Betman holweg you are left with Noska, Scheidemann, and others like them. These are the true figures, and the others were simply illusions superimposed upon them. Reader aside, there are a number of names here, and there are footnotes. I am not reading them. End of footnote. End of aside. What is important is that we not illustrate an historical phenomena using abstract concepts and ideas, but that we instead use those things that really were there in history. The definition of one thing in history will always be another fact or event, and never an abstract concept. This is what it means to truly study reality. And it follows from this that we must always be careful to direct our gaze on. Onto the true realities of any situation. For nowadays we live in an age in which many realities must be seen through, in which realities must be constantly laid bare by stripping away the outer layer. This phenomenon can be seen, especially when you study the makeup, the content of those secret societies that have a particularly strong influence within the English-speaking people, an influence that goes unsuspected by the public. These are societies that work together under particular sympathetic, outward rules, societies that in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch have achieved an ever-increasing influence in the world. If you look back to the year 1720, you will find that in England there were a few members in such societies. These members were simply the implements, by and large, with those who had actual influence standing somewhere behind them. But back then there were also only a few people who were members of these societies. If we look at the statistics nowadays, we find that in the Society of Freemasons, the kind of society which is a useful implement in the hands of the secret societies, there are 488 lodges in London, 1,354 lodges in all of Great Britain, 486 English-speaking lodges in the colonies and abroad. And associated with those we also have the so called royal arch masons, who hold the outward practices of Freemasonry a bit more secretly than the others. There are eight hundred and thirty six lodges of that society in the world. Now it is important, first of all, to cast our gaze on the fact that the substantial content of what exists in these lodges is an implement for these individuals who are truly empowered behind the scenes. And then it is a matter of finding the reasons why these powers have continued to have an unusually large significance to this day. The actual substantial content goes back to the distant past. And those who are always insisting that the content of Freemasonry dates back to the distant past are not altogether wrong. Even if their descriptions of the things are often nebulous or perhaps even intentionally false. But looking back toward the distant past touches upon a background that is certainly true. Indeed, it goes so far back into the past that we can accurately say the time out of which these things come is that of the first ancient phase of imperialism, when gods walked among us in human form. At that time, everything that was said in these lodges, and particularly everything that they practiced, made sense. Then it all became symbols. The true sense of these things has been there for ages. We can accurately say that within the lodges that exist currently, there is barely any awareness or content in the things that are said and done, but the symbols remained. The symbols have propagated themselves within the realm of the empty phrase. Consequently, in English-speaking areas, and those areas connected with them, we have two layers of cultural ferment existing beside one another, the altogether exoteric outward phrase that dominates public life, and the symbols, protected purely out of a sense of tradition within the secret societies. No one makes any effort to trace them back to their true origins, but they are protected and maintained as symbols. And so the symbol becomes a phrase in the form of a symbol, or a symbol that has undergone the development into a phrase, but appeared in the world in a different form. Thus we have the outward exoteric phrases of public life, which find expression in everyday human speech and carry on an existence in the parliament for example. And then we also have, in secret societies, the ongoing existence of symbols that are by and large not understood by those who have inherited these symbols. They are things with the quality of an empty phrase, but the form of a symbol. This is an important fact, that next to the purely verbal phrase of external life we also have the cultural phrase, the ceremonial phrase. For these ceremonial phrases always hide a spiritual element within. And in secret societies which have genuine ceremonial forms, meaning ones that date back to genuine practices of old, it can happen that individuals who are particularly gifted due to their karma can arrive at an understanding of the true meaning of these symbols. After all, sometimes even a blind chicken can find a kernel of corn. So it can sometimes happen that especially gifted individuals can arrive at the meaning behind these ceremonies. Afterward, they are removed from the secret society. This prevents them from causing any more harm to that secret society. For the thing that is important for these societies is not insight and understanding. It is power. Therefore, it is only about maintaining and protecting the secret rituals in their traditional form. And in practicing these traditional forms, they have a certain power. Why? I have already spoken of the character of the content of these traditional forms, but this content is, of course, connected to the people who band together in these secret societies. Think about how many people belong to the various lodges of these societies around the world but they were won over to the idea of joining these Lodges by certain factors. And one of the most important factors that originally won these people over to the Lodges, even though this particular factor is transgressed against in a variety of ways by nearly all of the Lodges, especially nowadays, though this does not dissipate their effectiveness, one of the most important perspectives under which people have bound together in these lodges is the fact that religious beliefs were not discussed or questioned. Certainly these days this principle has been violated. There are lodges of Freemasons in the world who, for example, will not allow any Jews to join. It goes without saying that such lodges exist, but these lodges do not understand the foundational principle. The foundational principle is to take in people of all religions. This is one of the main foundational principles, to pay no heed to the content of an individual's beliefs. The other is to pay no attention to a person's class or other differences in the world outside of the lodge. People who are members of a true lodge are all brothers, regardless of whether they are lords or working class citizens but this principle has also been violated. Most lodges will not accept any working-class citizens and will only take in lords and others who are amenable to them. But this has nothing to do with the foundational principles as such. Everyone within a lodge is nevertheless united under the slogan All are brothers. There are ranks within the society, but these have nothing to do with the class divisions the social divisions in human interaction outside of the Lodge. Thus the members of the Lodge are united under principles that have nothing to do with the outside world, nothing to do with our external society. For in our external society we have divided people first and foremost according to their religious beliefs, which play a large role there. Religious beliefs do not play any role in a true Lodge. And furthermore, no one could claim that people in external society are all brothers. In the lodges, those who are members at least are brothers. But such things have real significance. The principles under which a group of people are brought together is not inconsequential. When a group of people are brought together under a unified religious belief, then in actual life the society is, in its principles, only built upon external power, upon a form of power that is now dead. When a group of people is united by the perspective that a person's religious beliefs make no difference, then a society will result that possesses a strong spiritual power. This is the reason the Catholic Church always had to support its power through political means, because they wanted to unite people under a certain more or less unified religious belief. The Church grew more powerful the less people depended upon religious beliefs, the less the hierarchy of the Church, the less Rome itself depended upon religious beliefs. For in external life, in the social order of the physical world, to hold religious convictions in the position of authority within a society was to render that society powerless. A society can only step forward as a powerful presence when it pays no attention to religious beliefs. This is of particular importance in this age of the empty phrase, for next to the external phrase stands the esoteric phrase, the phrase of the ceremony, the phrase of the cult. And actually out of this backdrop, the social confusion of the present arose in our reality. We can cite some very peculiar evidence of the phrase-like quality of this age. You all know that until the middle of the nineteenth century there were two opposing parties in the English Parliament, the Liberal Party, the Whigs, and the Conservative Party, the Tories. Whigs and Tories were opposed to one another. But what kind of names were these actually? In the first half of the nineteenth century people took them very seriously. You referred to a liberal as a Whig and did not need to feel embarrassed about it. You referred to the others as Tories and did not need to feel embarrassed about that either. But when these names first arrived on the scene, during the early days of the English Parliament, what were those two names at that time? The term Whig had formerly been an insult. It came to Parliament as an insult. As an alliance formed in Scotland against the particularly stringent English regulations that had been instated there, a group of Scottish individuals banded together and were then referred to insultingly as Whigs in England. So you see, a phrase travelled so far as to go from being an insult to an official name for a political party. Think about how this all played out in reality. The reality is that the members of this Scottish alliance were referred to as Whigs in England. Then it was the highly honorable liberals who were not insulted, but rather defined by the term Whig. And the Tories, that was a name that came from Ireland. It was the term used to refer to followers of the Popery. Then this name, which had been an insulting name for members of the Irish Popery, became the official name for English conservatives. All of this played itself out in the realm of names, the domain of terms, the empire of phrases. True reality has nothing to do with any of it. This is an example that, shall we say, is taken from the surface layer, for you could find other examples exactly like this one, first and foremost, in the English-speaking world, but also in the rest of the world, insofar as it was and is afflicted by the empty phrase. But why is it then that so many people band together under principles that are absolutely admirable, such as those who come together in the lodges? It does not really matter that some small amount of truly dubious existence is also present in these lodges. What matters is the underlying principle. It is extremely significant that people come together under very powerful perspectives and that they come together in ceremonial phrases in a phrase-like cult, which then, for its part, gives the group cohesion out of a true spiritual basis. Of course, it is also the case that when someone is, let us say, a powerful minister and needs an undersecretary, it goes without saying that he would prefer to appoint his Freemason brother than to appoint just anyone off the street. This preference is even justifiable, for he knows his brother better and can work with him more effectively. A mob can be established by the same justifiable means, which is never negative for the relationships that it builds, but which must, nevertheless, cease to work in this manner in the world. But what is it, then, that will take its place? It is noteworthy that precisely in this age, in which empty phrases are dominant in public life, that in this age of the empty phrase a spiritual stream has entered the world, a spiritual society with decidedly effective principles. This spiritual society has been very secretive, not so much about its existence, but about the actual inner impulse that drives it. Why is that exactly? Because we live in the age of the empty phrase, and the phrase has allowed realities to be falsified. For what is it that is actually taking form? What already more or less exists. First, there is the independent, economic life, which is no longer in accord with the empty phrase, the spiritual life, which has been pushed underground, and the rights life, which paces the world as a phrase in a toga with more or less the same meaning for the physical world as jurisprudence and the English judges who sit on the bench in their legal regalia. The relationship between this legal regalia and the reality that exists in the world is the same as the relationship between jurisprudence and the underlying reality of the world. A threefold structure in the empire of the empty phrase, a threefold structure in falsehood, but proof for the necessity of the threefold social order. You see, to instate the threefold social order is, in essence, to replace lies and empty phrases with truth, but specifically with truth as reality, whereas currently we are living in an age in which reality is not truth but rather empty phrases, and everything connected with them. It is just as possible to carry on with empty phrases in the spiritual life as it is in the rights or political life, Only in the economic life is this not possible, for in that case we must take into consideration some larger issues that people continue to argue against in many of my public lectures. The same arguments come up again and again. After I have described the way in which a human being moves through the world that I spoke of in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds, and arrive at the idea of developing an inner sight into the spiritual world into spiritual reality then someone at every third lecture stands up during the discussion and says yes but how can a person know that what he is seeing inwardly is reality there is such a thing as autosuggestion after all this entire spiritual world can simply be a product of autosuggestion There is even the suggestion that when a person just thinks of lemonade, he can taste the lemonade in his mouth. The person suggests the taste of lemonade to himself. There is no actual taste of lemonade there, but a person has simply to think of it, and then can taste it in his mouth. In response to this, I always say, it all depends upon standing fully in reality. It is certainly true that a person can suggest to himself the taste of lemonade, but he cannot quench his thirst by suggesting it to himself in his thoughts. The quenching of thirst is missing. So if you step far enough away from it, you are easily led back to reality. We can have phrases in the realm of the spirit. We can even have empty phrases in the realm of politics and state affairs but we cannot easily have phrases in the realm of economic life because we cannot eat them, or at the very least cannot be made full by them. And consequently, in the age of the empty phrase, economic reality is left in the most characteristic position of all realities. And in the moment I have to say this again, in which we recognize that the illusion is an illusion, that an empty phrase is an empty phrase, a tremendous feeling of shame will emerge. Despite the fact that we human beings possess reason, we do nothing with this reason except tend to the basic economic needs of physical life, though even animals manage to tend to their own physical needs without possessing reason. When we human beings do nothing else with our reason except tend to the basic economic concerns of life, such as providing food for ourselves and getting the other basic things essential to physical life, then we are prostituting out our reason. We are using our reason to provide something that animals are perfectly capable of providing for themselves without the luxury of reason. In the moment this self-awareness dawns upon us, the moment that we recognize, excuse me, when we recognize the empty phrase as an empty phrase, in this moment a great feeling of shame will emerge, followed by the turnabout. Then will emerge an insight into the necessity for a renewal of the spiritual world. This must, however, be prepared for adequately, and that will occur only when a sufficiently large number of people are able to see through the relationships existing at present. For what good does it do when people fool themselves about what is real at the moment? What good does it do to believe in Lloyd George when you can see that everything that comes out of his mouth is nothing more than an empty phrase? What good does it do that the whole world bows down before Woodrow Wilson, even though you can clearly see that his politics are nothing but empty phrases? What good does it do to think about European relations on the basis of principles that have been inbred and inherited from a time centuries ago, principles that can have no power in the relationships of the contemporary world? We should also see symbols in the phenomena of history. We should be clear about the fact that already in the phenomena of the external world peculiar and noteworthy things are happening The Habsburgs, they have left Elsass, moving through Switzerland toward the east, ever onward toward the east. They arrived at their easternmost point when they became apostolic kings of Hungary. But in this journey from west to east lies the singular fact that western realities are fading and disappearing into the east. The house of Hohenzollern did not go nearly as far, just from Nuremberg to Berlin, but also traveled from west to east. This historical sign is indeed a real symbol that we would do well to pay attention to. And we must also cast our gaze upon what is truly reality among all the empty phrases. For that reason, it is impossible for anyone to gain an understanding of reality from the things that live in public opinion. Anyone nowadays who has any sense of actuality will arrive at very strange conclusions trying to analyze those things that appear in public life, all of the reproductions and emulations found throughout the world, such as the Whigs and the Tories. One eventually finds their origins. They once were terms of insult, and then people found it necessary to take them seriously, because it was not easy to find any good serious names. For the realities that existed in the world. This is how it goes with a lot of things these days. With an incredible number of things, this is how it goes. In public life nowadays, we try to enshroud words in a very particular kind of mystical darkness, and we do not notice. We do not notice that we are living in the age of empty phrases. For example, I know of one very interesting codex full of boldly composed phrases. When you open up this codex, you find sentences of a very peculiar nature, sentences like, What is the law? The law is the will of the people. And it goes on from there. Yes, my dear friends, the law is the will of the people. People, for human beings nowadays, this is nothing more than a collection of individuals. But this collection is supposed to have a will of its own. All of the assertions made in the Codex of Phrases are of the same nature as this one. You have the feeling when you read it that somebody enjoyed the luxury of having enough time to transcribe everything that existed in public life in the language of the empty phrase and publish it as a codex. And do you know what this Codex of Phrases is called? The State, and Woodrow Wilson is its author. And this Codex of Phrases first appeared in the 1890s. In the 1890s, Woodrow Wilson did not intend to have the luxury of time, enough to gather together all of the phrases existing in the public sphere. But as it happens, he did. This is how little the things that people in their phrase-like existence think and say have to do with what reality comes out of it. Woodrow Wilson thought that he had published the collected political wisdom of the day, but in reality he had written a codex full of empty phrases. Several years ago a German individual longed so strongly to eat the oats of empty phrases that he has now translated this thick book into German, so that you can now read it in German as well. I imagine that it will also be translated into other languages, but I do not know for sure. Unless we see through to the truth of these things, unless we fix our eyes on the realities of these matters, we will not move forward. Nowadays a person will go nowhere with lesser thinking. We have to incite our feeling cores to greater thinking. Tomorrow we will speak further about that. The end of Lecture 17.